0: The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here to study in the word of God and life of David. Even though we have moved on into the life of Solomon, uh, we will see that the beginning, at least, of Solomon's reign and uh, the building of the temple and the other things associated with that are all really a carry-on, if you will, of David's life, an extension of David's life. And that's part of the reason why we are covering this material. Now, we, uh, we would definitely will work our way through the end of the handout that you see today where we have the prayer of dedication and those things. And whether we go much farther than that, I'm not sure because uh, we may move on from that into our uh, study in eschatology But we will see I uh, we have to cover this ground first because I definitely want to get through that part of of Solomon's life before we continue on on any other uh, studies. But uh, we will see where the Lord takes us on that Uh, before we dive into our study. It is uh, imperative as believer priests as part of the church that we would be prepared for the study of the word of God properly. So we're going to take a moment for silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if necessary, but also To humble ourselves, because we are not teachable unless we are humble, shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to be here at the church this morning. We do want to lift up before you the leaders of our nation, our president, his wife, The others who have been affected by COVID-19, we ask that you would give them speedy recoveries. Uh, We ask that you would be uh, at work in them to help them to be able to continue their duties, even though they have contracted this virus. And, Father, we just pray that uh, as quickly as possible you would see to it that this virus is eradicated so that we can all get back to some sense of normalcy. Father, that's what we desire We pray now that as we take this time here at the church to focus our thoughts on what your word has to teach us, that you would help us to set aside all the distractions of life, including all the things that have changed with the COVID-19 pandemic. We ask that you would help us to just forget all those things. Focus our thoughts right now on what it is that you're trying to teach us this morning that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, I want to start out with uh, a little bit of an a little bit of a, an admonition, if you will, maybe even borderline a borderline rebuke. Uh, we, we have been studying going through the, um, the the elements of the building of the temple, and that includes not only the building itself, but also the furnishings inside the temple. And uh, we're going to get to uh, before too long, we're going to get to the placing of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple and the other things associated with that. And I had I had some feedback uh, that this was not very interesting. So uh, what I will tell you is that there there sometimes going through all of these things can be somewhat tedious. We're going through and looking at. Uh, architecture of the building and how the craftsmanship was done to put together all of these things. And one of the things I'll tell you is is that I could, I could have tried to spice up the teaching on this by adding in some um, descriptions of what it is that these various things within the temple represent and what the meaning of all of them is. For example, I could have said, you know, well, when they did the walls and they did the palm trees and they did the cherubim and they did the flowers, the open flowers were probably lilies. It's possible they were lilies. And the representation there is that you have the cherubim there, so you have the representation of the angelic uh, life and the angelic existence and and all that's involved with that. And then the palm tree represents... Bountiful fruitfulness and uh, the, the life in vegetables and all of this. And then the other things with the, the lily, the beauty of God's world and so on. And I could do all that. I could have thrown all of that in. And in fact, you probably you may have even had teaching along those lines of the purple in the tabernacle represents royalty and other things. There's one big problem with all of that. The reason and the reason why I didn't uh, add all of that. Because, you know, as a congregation, I ask you to diligently search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And guess what? If you diligently search the scriptures to see if those things are so, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find any of that. Because the scriptures don't actually say the pomegranates represent this and the palm trees represent that. And this is that. And the other. it's it's not in there. You won't find it. Uh, These are all speculations of men writings of the rabbis, writings of others who have gone in and made speculation of what it is that all these various things in the tabernacle represent. And I could teach that I could try to spice up the teaching of all these things by adding all of that. But now I'm going beyond what the Bible says, and I'm not really adding that much. The reason we're going through and we're covering all of these things with regard to the temple and the building of the temple and the furnishings that go in it and everything else is because I want to give you an appreciation of what all it went into the construction of this building and the reason it was all all oriented towards the holiness of God. I mean, that's without question. That is definitely uh, in view with regard to the scriptures, so that you would have an appreciation for what comes next in terms of the dedication of the temple and how significant a thing it was in the representation of the temple, the fact that now under Solomon, the tabernacle was was given to the people of Israel because of their wonderings. They were wandering here and wandering there, and they were always under siege from other countries and they were having to move from place to place. And they were always never at a place where they were settled in. And the fact that the Lord allowed Solomon to build the temple was done because of the fact that he had finally given the people of Israel rest. They were finally able to settle in and they were going to be able to build a building Uh, that would be their house of worship that would be in Jerusalem. It wouldn't be picked up and moved from place to place. And the dedication of the temple itself is a significant event. So I wanted you to have an appreciation for that. Also, that kind of teaching where we go through material that's not necessarily the most exciting, you know, I mean, talking about cedar wood and rock and different things that are going on, not necessarily the most exciting thing to cover That's one of the it's going to sound interesting when I say this. that's one of the distinctives of a church like this is that we don't just touch on certain passages and the things that I know are going to excite the congregation. And the thing we sometimes we cover material, we're going through a narrative here in the life of David, and sometimes we cover material that's eh, not quite so exciting. Right. It's more mundane. And so that's okay. We do that. We cover the material and it's good because one of the things I hold as extremely important is that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Even the description of the building of the temple is God-breathed and is profitable to us as we learn these things. So I thought it was interesting that I met was met with some criticism because we're covering this material. It's part of God's Word, and so I'm not, I'm not ashamed to cover any of it. But I will tell you, I didn't try to flower it up. I did not do that on purpose because... I don't want to add information to it that is not really grounded in scripture. It's really just the speculations of men. So does that make sense? So that's why we're doing this and we're almost through. We're almost through all the 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 mundane, boring details of all of this, and then we're going to get to some really neat things that happen uh as the dedication of the temple takes place. So uh my apologies if this is boring, but it is still part of God's word. This is review. Of what we did last time, uh, Solomon had his palace built along with other associated uh, buildings. Uh, the palace complex uh, took thir- 13 years to build, uh, which was longer than the temple itself at seven and a half. Palace was bigger than the temple, and remember, I showed the picture of the fact that the Solomon's temple, the original temple, was smaller than a football field. It's actually not very big. Uh, the palace was adorned with cedar wood, and we looked at all of that. Um, Solomon actually built a hall of justice. There was a, a a complex there where there was a building for the for a hall of justice there. And there was also a building for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, um, just like the temple stone was cut for the foundation and the walls of the buildings. I was hoping, you know, when it came to those uh those fixtures on the building, I was hoping Ken could could help me understand how that works. Somehow, Ken, they when they were building the temple, they added some added some some uh facets on the outside of the building that allow them to attach the side rooms without having any of the beams go inside the building. And so I don't know what those were exactly, but they actually built the temple itself such that they could attach all the side rooms without having beams go through to the inside of the building. And part of the reason for that is they wanted to keep uh, the walls themselves unobstructed so that it would have, you know, the clean, pure, pure walls, right? The walls would be uh, clean all the way to the the ceiling and that way all of the artwork and all of the other things that were done on the walls would be consistent i I mentioned i think it's kind of cool that we have beams sticking through the room here i think it gives it kind of a homey feel and it's quite comfortable but uh but but believe it or not most of you may not know this uh except for that one right back there uh these are all ornamental they're all here just to look good that one back there is pretty important, though. That one back there holds up the roof. Yeah, that one, one about halfway through holds up the roof. But uh, beyond that, the rest of these are ornamental. But in the temple, they didn't want to have that. They didn't want the beams to come through into the middle, and so they and, and they they constructed these these uh, buildings in the same way. The courtyard around the palace complex had a wall uh, like the one that was around the temple itself. So they they did the rock and cedar wall around the Palace complex, just like they did around the temple. Uh, then we looked at uh, this Hiram coming from Tyre. And you might think that's the king, but it was not. He's a skilled craftsman. It's not the king. He was skilled in doing work in bronze. His, in fact, his, his uh, father was a bronze worker, and he learned from his father he was very skilled in doing bronze work. And he built two bronze pillars over 30 feet high, including the capitals on top. And uh, they were named uh, Jachin and Boaz. They were erected on either side of the temple portico, the porch. And we looked at all of that. And then this is where we ended. He built a large bronze reservoir that held 11,500 gallons of water. Uh, now, I think I didn't, I don't think I pulled up the that deal. Let me see if I can uh, pull that up. Um, I had that sort of interactive deal that would show. Let me do that. Let that search do its thing, and we'll move on. Uh, Hiram continued his work by making ten movable stands or lavers of bronze, and that's in uh, First Kings seven twenty-seven. I don't know why it's not taking my link. First Kings. Why my computer's not behaving? Yeah, that's very nice, isn't it? All right. It will it refuses to do what I want it to do. That will not come up. All right, we're going to have to make an adjustment here. My log is not uh, responding. Isn't that cool? All righty. I refuse to be defeated by my computer. Well, maybe I will be. All right. There we go. It finally came up. All right. It's not responding though. All right. this is awesome. All right, let's see. First Kings 7, 27. Uh, this was the design of the stands. Let's see I'm going from 27, I'm sorry. Uh, Then he made uh, the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits and its width, four cubits, and its height, three cubits. This was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders which were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames there was a pedestal above, and beneath the lions and oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Now, each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, And its four feet had supports beneath the basins were cast supports with wreaths at each side. Let me see where I'm going through 40. It goes all the way down through 40. I'm trying to see if we have that media. I don't know if it came up or not. I should have brought that up earlier. I think it was this guy. Yeah. Which will s- expand to a full screen if I can. It's not letting me do it. Well, I am going to defeat you, computer. You are not to defeat me. <laughs> I will get there eventually. It's, my, part of it is this, is this is an old computer and it's not very fast. All right. This was what we had, um, the depiction of this. And these here on the side, these are the labors that we're talking about right now. See them there? Yeah. Stands or labors. All right. Uh, and let's read on down to the first through verse 40. Uh, it's opening inside the crown and its top was a cubit and its opening was round like the design of a pedestal, a cubit and a half. And also it's opening it, on its opening. There were engravings and their borders were square, not round. The four wheels were underneath the borders and the axles of the wheels were on the stand. And the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. So that's an 18 inch wheel. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. Now, there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. Its supports were part of the stand itself. On the top of the stand, there was a circular form, half a cubit high, and on top of the stand, its stays and its borders were part of it. He engraved on the plates of its stays and on its borders, cherubim lions, and palm trees according to the clear space on each with wreaths all around." He made the ten stands like this. All of them had one casting, one measure, and one form. He made ten basins of bronze. One basin held 40 baths. Each basin was four cubits, and on each of the ten stands was one basin. Then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house eastward toward the south. Now Hiram made the basins and the shovels and the bowls, so Hiram finished doing all the work, which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. Now, so that was the that was the description. Uh, they these stands were the ones were used. Remember, I talked about the big sea was large. It held a lot of water and it was actually the one that the priests would use for cleaning themselves in preparation for their priestly service and worship. These stands were actually more likely used for the washing of the entrails when an animal was sacrificed and part of the reason that they were mobile that they could be moved around is when there was something going on like we're going to read about in the next like we're going to read about in the next chapter when we get to the feast of booths and we get to the dedication of the temple and we see all the animal sacrifices that are taking place. They would have had sacrifices of animals taking place all over the courtyard. And they could move these various basins around to wherever they needed them in terms of what they were doing in a particular event, a particular festival. So they were, they were used for cleaning the entrails. And each stand held 230 gallons of water. That's the translation from baths to gallons, 230 gallons of water. Uh, Now, the summary of Hiram's work also mentions the bronze utensils that he made. We saw the utensils there, and then when we get to the summary, it goes on. The two pillars and the two bowls of the capitals, which were on top of the two pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals, which were on the top of the pillars And the ten stands with the ten basins on the stands and the one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea and the pails and the shovels and the bowls, even all these utensils which Hiram made for King Solomon in the house of the Lord were of polished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them see this. It's King Solomon as a reference to him there in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zarethan. Solomon left all the utensils unweighed because they were too many. The weight of the bronze could not be ascertained. So it's, it's interesting. It says the king cast them, but it was actually Hiram that was doing the casting. Right. But the language of that was that he was the one out there doing it because that's pretty common language. Yes. I just wonder if you have any insight into why they didn't use iron for any of this stuff. Thing or what? In terms of the bronze as opposed to the iron, honestly, I believe it was because... They were patterning, uh, doing the pattern of the temple after the pattern of the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, many of these things were bronze, right? There were gold plated things and there were also bronze things as well uh, that were placed in the temple. Now, to go back to the original instructions for the tabernacle, why was that bronze instead of iron? Uh, That's a great question, actually, and I do not have the answer for you at this point in time. Yes, sir. Well, that's true. Iron will rust and bronze will not. Bronze will not. Bronze does not. Is not well, bronze bronze will oxidize, but not the same way, right? It, it oxidizes and gets a patina. If you've ever seen it, bronze will get a very beautiful patina when it oxidizes, but it doesn't rust and corrode like iron does. And so maybe that was part of it is because of what you, it's, it's a little bit of both because what you were saying is if there's a purity there in terms of it doesn't corrode. Uh, the iron would corrode, and that would be not very a very holy depiction, right, to have the thing Rusting and corroding. Yes. The goes, is the yeah. I I would think that bronze would be would be lighter, but I'm not sure if you made two objects, one out of bronze and one out of iron and they were exactly the same. I'm not sure which would be heavier, but um, but that that's a good question. That's a good question. Of course, the tabernacle was meant to be carried. Yeah. So they they had a weight consideration there. But I bet you it's more related to the cor- corrosion factor. Um, than anything, so the utensils were cast, cast. Excuse me, in the clay ground of the Jordan Valley. So what they, I, what I believe they were talking about there, is they would actually use the clay of that to actually make the casts. They were actually u- making, making casts out of the, the clay that was natural to the Jordan Valley. Uh, there were so many bronze utensils that the weight was beyond measure. That just blows me away. I mean, the temple's not very big, but they made all these utensils for uh for the the service in the temple to the point where there were so many of them that they didn't even bother to weigh them there were too many too many to to weigh and uh then we get to the furniture furniture inside the temple was made of gold made of gold first Kings 7 48 through 50 solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the lord now you notice again the same language we just had it says solomon made all of the furniture i i don't think solomon raised a finger to make any of this this was the language of, of, of a king having these things done right having these things done solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the lord the golden altar and the golden table on which was the bread of the presence and the lamp stands five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary of pure gold and the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold and Oh, we're getting we're getting uh, we're getting a reading of the Bible. It sounds like and the cups and the snuffers and the bowls and the spoons and the fire pans of pure gold and the hinges both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place and for the doors of the house that is of the nave of gold. So uh, this is all being made out of gold. We had all, the, all of that being made out of bronze. Now we have this all being made out of gold. I, w- I want to go back to that. Just one second. No, I was going to say. Well, I want to go back to this real quick. They actually did the whole depiction here uh, to try to make it be exactly like what was talked about in there. If you remember, uh, these five were placed on the south side. There's five over here on the north side that you can't see. And then remember the description of the location for the the sea? And it was placed on the south side, but on the easternmost. Remember, this face is east. This face is east. So they depicted it as much as they could like that. And then we see all the gold inside as well. Yes. Well, when you look at some of the things, some of the things were done with a gold overlay. Some of the other things were made out of gold. Right. So you have both. You have both. Because remember, the walls on the ins. for example, the walls on the inside of the temple were made out of cedar. And right. They did the cedar so much to the point where you couldn't even see any of the stone. There's the walls were completely covered with cedar. But then they covered that with gold. So that would have been an overlay. But some of these other things were actually made out of gold. Yeah, they were made out of gold. Uh, So that's so you have a little bit of both. Uh, Well, it probably was not pure gold. It was probably an alloy uh, because and that's I used to I used to be in the coin business and we dealt with precious metals and 24 karat gold is not a good thing to make something out of because you can literally take your fingernail and put a dent in 24 karat gold It's so soft. But believe it or not, all you have to do is put a little bit of alloy in there, 22 karat gold, which is mostly pure is very very durable. 22 karat gold is very durable and it's still by the way 22 karat gold depending on what you use for the alloy can still have that beautiful gold look to it. It can be very very bright gold in its appearance. But just a little bit of alloy is all you need and they probably they probably made some of it uh, with an alloy. The overlay was probably pure though, yes. Yeah, the porch Porch faced east. Well, in the case of the temple, uh, it was, uh, remember, it was it was constructed up on the temple mount. And I believe probably the way they constructed the whole thing, having it faced to the east, is that was probably coming over there. It was the easiest way to get in and access the building. I don't think there's a spiritual significance to it of any kind. It really was probably more practical in nature. Yes. They always would face it. It's true. They would would always face the tabernacle to the east. So, yeah, but I don't, but I don't believe here's the whole key though. There might've been some importance to that in terms of Paul is talking about the sun coming up in the east and things of that nature. You also have, you also, for example, in Israel, you have to think about the various winds Uh, And so that's possible, but it's not the same kind of a meaning as you have with the the Muslims praying to the to Mecca kind of thing. Right. There's no. Yeah, but there's no there's no significance in that regard. It's not like East is somehow holy and West is unholy or something like that. Don't don't get that idea. There's nothing of that nature. Uh, Probably was more practical in nature than anything. Um, The altar of incense. Which was just outside the Holy of Holies, the table of showbread, the lampstands, the tongs, the cups, the snuffers, the bowls, spoons, firepans, all of it uh, made out of gold. Even door hinges made of gold. Now, see, that's where, like, you know, when you talk about that, the idea of a door hinge, if it was made out of pure gold, those, that wouldn't last very long. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Solomon also brought in all the things dedicated by David. At the very end of this chapter, we get that. Uh, It says, uh, thus, all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. Right. So now we're done. We've finished the construction of the temple. It says and Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father, David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So all of these things were brought. Now, by the way, uh, you know, a question came up. uh, I think it was after class. I don't think it was during class last time, but after class, Uh, what happened to the tabernacle after they decommissioned the tabernacle and the temple was built? And we're going to see when we get to the next chapter, you know, when you look at all of these things that were brought in, the silver and the gold and utensils, along with all the bronze utensils that were made, uh, they could not store all of those clearly inside the, the temple proper. Many of these things would be stored in those side rooms. And, in fact, I'm, I'm of the opinion, after reading the next chapter, that the tabernacle itself was probably stored, at least as long as it was stored, in those side rooms. They took the, the materials that they didn't recommission into the temple. See, some of those things were reused in the temple. But the things that they didn't, the furnishings and uh, the materials themselves that they used for the tabernacle, poles that they used to carry it and the other things, those things were probably stored off in those side rooms that we looked at that wrapped the temple, right? Remember that when we talked about the all these side rooms that go around the building? You got all those rooms around the building. Those were used for all sorts of things, including, I think, storage for those, those materials. We'll get to that in the next chapter. But he brought in the things dedicated by David, and that, that, in a way, was Solomon honoring David, right? David had set those things aside, knowing that in his lifetime he was never going to see it. And Solomon honored his father, David, by bringing in those things that David had set aside. All right. Now we get to the next, which you should have a handout from today, the completion, the completion of the temple. Solomon had his palace built. Wait a minute. Something is wrong here. That's the wrong slideshow. I started the wrong one. That's what we just looked at. I need to be bringing up the dedication of the temple. Dedication of the temple. Solomon had the Ark of the Covenant brought into the temple. That's in the first 11 verses of chapter 8. First thing we see is the elders and the heads of the tribes and families receive special invitations for this event. I'll tell you why I say that here in just a moment. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant Of the Lord from the city of David, which is in which is Zion. Now, um, it says he had them assembled. We're going to see here in just a couple of verses that people from all over Israel were already assembled in Jerusalem because it was the Feast of Booths. So what this means is when he had them assembled, he had them specially assembled. They received a special invitation to be there for the dedication of the temple itself. Uh, So this was a special invitation in order for them to be up there and front front and center uh, to be present for this. Um, The Ark and the Covenant was in the tabernacle on Mount Zion in Southeast Jerusalem. Um, I will bring up for you. Hopefully my computer will behave a little better this time. Uh, We don't need that now. I don't believe. Uh, Let me bring up. All right, let me see picture I want y'all to see. All right, here we go. Let me see if I can expand that for a second. Oh, it's not going to let me. Oh, it's, you can still kind of see it there though. Uh, you see where the temple is built? This is a picture of uh, of the area of Jerusalem for all of this. So the temple was constructed up here, Mount Moriah up here. Uh, other descriptions of the the different walls that that are there. But what is called the city of David, if if you want to be proper about it, is actually this portion down here, uh, this portion of Jerusalem down here. And so this is where the tabernacle was. It was down here in this part. The temple was built up here. So they went to the city of David, which is Zion. That's where Mount Zion is in order to get the tabernacle to bring it up to the temple, which was constructed in that part of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So that's why we see we normally think of and I even am guilty of this myself of thinking of all of Jerusalem as being the city of David. Uh, In reality, they would refer to that portion of this of Jerusalem as the city of David, that particular portion. And that's where the tabernacle was located. All the men of Israel were assembled in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. That's what I was just mentioning. If we look at. um, Verse 2, all the men of Israel assemble themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And if we look at Leviticus 23:34, it says, speak to the sons of Israel, saying on the 15th of the seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. So this is the month that we're talking about here. They're in the feast. This is the feast of booths. They're gathered all together. So that's why I say. The elders and the heads of the households and the heads of the tribes, they were given a special invitation to come to the dedication. But everybody was already there for the Feast of Booths. or tab- Some people call it Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. What's yeah. What, the feast of booths for? what is it for? I mean, really, it's more about the... Celebration of the fact that God has blessed them with pl- the, their homes and places about it's about where they reside. Yeah. What's that? When well, you start with the new year. Yeah. Then you go uh, 7, 6, yeah. Then after the, three days, Yeah. Yeah, the tabernacles it's celebration of the of of their homes, the places that they have, their farms. Where yeah, what God's provided for them. Exactly, that's what really it's all about. The booths would be their tents, if you will, where they live. Yes, sir. Well, it had an element of that. It certainly did. And and it. Yeah, if you think about if you think about if you think about the festivals, the feasts of Israel, really. Uh, that's the majority of the feast is, is, is remembering their, the wilderness, remembering what God has done for them. Yes, because the, the booths or the tabernacle is a tent. Exactly. They were living in tents. And so what they're celebrating is how God provided for them, even when they were in their wanderings. But now most people at this point in time, again, they've settled in. They're at rest now. Most people now uh, are living in more permanent structures. But many people still did live in in tent-like structures even at that time. But it's also provision of the land where they lived, the way they were able to provide for themselves and so on. So it it had a lot of different aspects to it. But it was the booths themselves would be the, the tabernacle or the tent that the people would live in. And, you know, how many times do we read and we're going to read it at the end of all of this, that once this feast is over, everybody went back to their tents. Everybody went went back to their homes, to their tents. Right. That's where they would stay. So many of them still live that way. But, yeah, it, it's the idea of of. Um, But tribute to, again, again, God's provision for them. That's what it's really about. Uh, With with the elders, excuse me, I skipped over that. With the elders of Israel present, the priests took up the Ark of the Covenant. That's in verse three. Then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark. Then they brought it up to the uh, up the tabernacle and its holy utensils along with the Ark. Look what it says here in verse four. They brought up the Ark of the Lord. And the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils, which were in the tent and the priests and the Levites brought them up. So the tabernacle was actually brought. They didn't just get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it alone. They brought the whole tabernacle with them. But the whole call was for the Ark to be taken and brought to the temple. But they brought it all. They brought the whole thing. Uh, And this is what I mentioned earlier. The tabernacle and its furnishings may have been stored in the side rooms of the temple. I think that's probably the case. Remember, there were brand new furnishings made for the temple. They had the furnishings that had already been done for the tabernacle. But when Solomon had the temple built, he had brand new furnishings built for the temple. So all the furnishings that were in the tabernacle, those too would have been put into storage. Some, I read all about this, by the way. I'm not going to bore you with all the details of it. But some people said that probably what happened to the, to the uh, tabernacle materials and such Uh, is that eventually the materials themselves probably decayed. They probably, you know, like any cloth type thing will, eventually those things probably decayed. And they they eventually, a lot of people said the same thing. Eventually after they decayed, they probably just got tossed out. Uh, It wasn't in use anymore. The the tabernacle wasn't being used anymore. and They tossed it out. The furnishings, on the other hand, those would have survived. They would have lasted a lot longer. And and I don't know what would have come of those. You know, we're not sure. But we do know that the tabernacle was brought up and it was no longer being used. The people responded to the Ark of the Covenant coming up by worshiping the Lord and sacrificing innumerable animals. Uh, in verse five, it says in King Solomon. And all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, they could not be counted or numbered. And that was, again, the people were rejoicing and offering up sacrifices to the Lord in their in their joy. The Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies under the wings of the two cherubim. Verses six and seven. And the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, to the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, that's the Holy of Holies, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles from above. If I go back to this... Let me bring that back to full screen there. Zoom in a little bit. We can get to the. See how they depict the arc underneath there. Now, one of the things I will tell you is there's a flaw in this depiction uh, because the poles were long enough that they were visible from outside. We're going to see that in just a minute. You see how they have the poles very short right there and they're hiding under the wings of the cherubim. We're going to see in the next verse that the poles should actually be depicted somewhat longer than that. Uh, Let me go ahead and get to the get to that. The poles used to carry the ark were so long they could be seen from the holy place. Remember, that's the the outside. There's the holy place and the holy of holies. Holy place was was that which was outside in verse eight. It says, but the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. What that means is outside the temple. You couldn't see them outside the temple. And it says they are there to this day. Now, I didn't make a comment about that, by the way. But what that tells us, by the way, is uh, when it says they are there to this day, that tells us that the, the writings here in 1st King were done before the destruction of the temple, which was done when Babylon came in and destroyed the temple. So this was written, 1st Kings, Kings was written before the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So uh, we, know, we know that but it says uh, they were seen so those those the, the depiction that we have here should show the poles a lot longer than that where they were actually visible from out here in this room which is the holy place but they were not visible outside the temple all right Moses' two tablets of stone were all that was inside the ark of the covenant it's interesting that it's mentioned that way It says there was nothing in the ark except two two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, uh, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Well, in Hebrews, it describes the ark having a pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, But they were not in the ark of the covenant at this point. It says uh, in Hebrews uh, 9, 3 and 4, it says behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. That would be the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the description in Hebrews describes it with Um, a golden jar, a pot of manna, along with Aaron's rod that budded. But this description says the only thing that was in there were were the two stones. So they were either placed there sometime after this event took place, or maybe they were removed by one of Israel's enemies. If you remember, there were all kinds of things that happened with the ark, especially with the Philistines, right? So is it possible that in one of those incidents where one of Israel's enemies came and uh, stole the Ark away and did what they did. Maybe they took those things out. Maybe uh, maybe it's not like it was in. Uh, uh, what's the what's the movies I'm searching for? The <laughs> uh, gosh, the, Harrison for the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe it's not like that. Maybe if they opened the Ark and they pulled the stuff out, maybe they didn't get immediately destroyed. But yes, sir. Uh, Aaron, Aaron had a rod that he, he, he was holding and using and it actually budded. It was one of the miracles that took place. And so it was something that they put inside the covenant at one point. I mean, inside the ark of the covenant at one point, because it was a testament to one of those miracles. And of course the manna, we know that was obviously a, a miraculous thing, but there was a, a, we could go back and look at it, but there was a, an event where he had a, a simple rod and yet the rod butted. And so it was, uh, it was a testimony to the miraculous things that God could do. Um, now, those things are not in there, though. Uh, they're not in there anymore. So either, you know, they were not in there and they got placed inside there sometime later or else some point in time they were removed by one of Israel's enemies. We don't know. We don't know which it is. We don't have the answer. But, they, but very specifically it said the only things in there were the two stone, the two tablets, When the priests exited the holy place after placing the Ark in the Holy of Holies, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So they came out of the Holy of Holies. They had placed it in there. Go back. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we have the, the glory of the Lord filling up the house. Now, it says they, they exited the holy place, right, when they came from the holy place. That's the, outer cha- that's the outer chamber, if you will, not the inner chamber, uh, the holy of holies. But when they came out, then that's when the glory of the Lord filled the entire house. This cloud is often referred to as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is, a, is actually a word that you will not find in the Bible. Shekinah is a word that the the rabbis used because it's a word that the Hebrew word that means he caused to dwell. In other words, he was dwelling there. The Lord himself was dwelling. God is everywhere. I always have to remind people of this when we look at something like this. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. That's one of the aspects of who who he is. He's not limited to space or time. So he's everywhere. But what we have here is a particular manifestation of of God and this manifestation of God and his glory were done to show that he was with them. He was present there in the temple with them, and it was for them to see his glory and the fact that he was right there with them. Uh, Something very similar happened, by the way, uh, with the tabernacle. If we go all the way back to Exodus. In chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So just like the priests could not go in at this time, uh, Moses was unable to go inside the tabernacle because the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord filled it. Uh, You know, I, I talk about that manifestation. It's like we talk about, you know, as believers, we are indwelled by the spirit. Well, God is everywhere. So what does it mean that you're indwelled by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God is in you? Well, if if God is everywhere, then he's in me. Well, the language of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is the language of him taking up residence, right? Him taking up residence in you. You are a home. You are a temple of God. You yourself are a temple of God, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. This is the picture of this cloud filling the temple is that God has taken up residence in the temple. He's showing Israel that he is now with them in the temple, which uh, Solomon had built. And it is, it's evidence to the people of Israel that he is approving of what was done here with the temple itself. He approves. All right. Uh, Solomon highlighted this remarkable occasion by addressing the people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to torture all of you uh, by waiting. We are going to come back And look at this next time. And we're going to go through his address to the people. We're going to look at his prayer, the benediction, uh, the offering up of sacrifices and the the things that happened with the Feast of Booths, which, by the way, interestingly, uh, normally would be seven days. But because this was a special occasion, they actually did it for 14 days, as we'll see when we get there also. So I'm going to make you wait until we get to his address, which this is an amazing address. Uh, And then we have the prayer, which is a really wonderful prayer. And we have uh, the blessing of the people and the dedicatory sacrifices and so on. But all of that is just a tease. You have to come back (laughs) to get all of that. We're going to go to our scripture of the week first. Scripture of the week. John 15 verses 18 and 19. All right. Verses 18 and 19. Let's all read this. Together, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. All right. I don't know what's going to happen in November. I don't know who's going to win the election. I don't have any idea what we're going to see as we go forward in this country. One of the things that I can tell you with certainty and with confidence is that we are on a trajectory as a country to become more and more godless. We are moving away from the things of God. We are adopting the things of the world, the things of Satan. We as a country, I would not classify ourselves as As a Christian nation anymore, we are uh, quite secular in nature now. That is something that makes me sad. That is something that makes me pray. Uh, We are on a on a trajectory that is not one that I think is uh, pleasing in God's sight. And I do, as I've told you before, I do often ask myself why he hasn't just destroyed us. And uh, because there's no biblical promise that we get to stick around. Israel has a promise that they're going to be back again, right, that they will be restored. Uh, United States of America, we got no promises. So why haven't we been destroyed? And the only two reasons I've ever been able to come up with is because uh, we do support missionaries all around the world, uh, probably uh, more so than any other nation. We are second to South Korea in terms of per capita support. South Korea supports Per capita, more missionaries than we do. But as far as overall, the United States of America is more supportive of missionaries than any other nation. We also support Israel. I think that's a big deal. Uh, So those two aspects are the only things I can find, because as a nation, we do have a remnant here. There's no doubt there is a remnant in the United States, but we are a godless nation. Uh, So I'm anticipating the reason I'm saying all of that is I'm anticipating that the levels of persecution that we are going to face as Christians is going to increase. Now, right now, we, we could talk about persecution, but folks, we don't know anything about persecution. What we face in terms of per- persecution is being mocked. There are people in the world who what they face per, for persecution is if their faith is found out, they will die. They will be killed. Uh, or thrown in prison and left there, you know, to to fend for themselves or try, they'll try to brainwash them or whatever else. Right. So we don't face the kind of persecutions that, that persecution that Christians around the world face. But what I'm expecting, regardless of who wins in November, is what I'm expecting is there is going to be more and more persecution of the church in the United States. It's going to gradually increase. So we should get used to the idea of the world hating us when the world is mentioned here. When Jesus talks about the world here, he is talking about the people, the people in the world. But in particular, the people in the world that are of Satan's cosmos system. This is what's in view is the cosmos system. That's what the word world is. It's cosmos. And we are in a world that's antagonistic toward God. Right now, at this present time, God has allowed Satan to have dominion, and that we are in a world system that is satanic in nature, and the world hates us. And by the way, if the world hates you, actually the world hates us since the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world hated Christ. Why would we expect anything different since we are followers of Christ? Why would we expect anything different? And by, by the way, he says that to, to, to relate on the terms of... a of he is our kinsman redeemer right he's a kinsman he's hated and so are we right he was hated and so are we if you were of the world now we're in the world but we're not of the world if you were of the world the world would love its own now i will tell you we just were studying this last hour in romans if you want to you can make yourself as a born again believer in jesus christ you can make yourself very worldly you can you can accommodate the things of the world and what Romans says is when you do that, you are actually at enmity with God. That's what James says, too. James says that it says when we are when we are accommodating of the things of the world, we're at enmity with God. But believers can do it if you want to. You can make yourself extremely worldly. And as I mentioned last hour as well, there are churches in our country who have made themselves extremely Worldly. And as far as I'm concerned, those churches are at enmity with God. They're hostile toward God. You do not want to bring the world into this building. Uh, you want to take what's in this building, the light, the light and the holiness that God has granted us as a function of what he's doing in our lives. We want to take that light out of the building. We don't want to bring the darkness in. Each and every one of us can can be can be as though we're of the world. Right. The world will love its own. If you want to be loved by the world, you can make it happen. You can make it happen. But in doing so, you compromise your your fellowship with the Lord. You compromise and put yourself at enmity with God. It says here, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. So this is the interesting thing that some people don't realize. This I, I will point this out. And I know people like this, sadly. If you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ and you do Go out of your way to try to make yourself a friend of the world. The bottom line of it is, you're going to get along with the people in the world, but the reality is, at the core, they're still going to hate you because you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ. You are not the same as them. Even though you may be trying to act like them, you are not the same. And so here's the deal this idea of hate, the world hates you. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised at all when we find ourselves the object of scorn, uh, being mocked, treated as though we're somehow imbeciles because we believe in God and we believe in Jesus Christ. You have to be a you have to be an idiot or else you wouldn't believe that. Right. You have to be weak. You have to need you must need a crutch of some kind for you to believe in God. That's what they'll tell you. What a bunch of malarkey. That is just absolute garbage. Uh, If you are really, really bright and you really examine in my mind, if you really are bright and have your eyes open and you look at this world that we live in, evidence of God is everywhere. And if it's the people, the people that are 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 antagonistic towards God, the ones that hate us, they actually are the ones that are not really seeing clearly. And uh, the intellectuals, the priesthood of intellectuals that we have in this country, you know, they would try to make it sound like we're a bunch of. We're a bunch of simpletons. But The reality of it is everybody I look around and I see in this room, you're all thoughtful people. You're all bright. You are all seeking God. You're all wanting to know more about him. You're not coming this from the standpoint of a simpleton. You're bright people. You want to know the Lord, but they're going to hate you. They're absolutely going to hate you because you're not of this world anymore. You're God's. You've been chosen out. You have a brand on you. You may not be able to see it, but you have a brand on you, the seal of the Holy Spirit. You have been branded and and there's a seal on you that says you are gods. And because of that, the world's going to hate you because you are not one of them. And even again, as I mentioned, even if you try to act like you're of the world, even if you try to accommodate those things, you may get along with folks, but you're still not one of them. You'll never be one of them because you're gods. You've been you have been claimed by him. And Jesus has chosen us out of the world, and because of that, the world's going to hate us. So just brace yourself for that. Don't expect anything otherwise. Don't be surprised when the world makes fun of you, when they mock you. And don't let it shake your faith. When, the, when those things come along, when something comes along where you find yourself the object of even minimal persecution, celebrate it. If you're walking in the light as He is in the light and you're being persecuted, that's actually a blessing. That's what Peter taught. It's a blessing to be persecuted for your faith. And so don't look at it as a negative thing and don't let it shake your faith. Just recognize it as the world itself is gonna hate us for what we, for what we are because we are, we are people that have, have been chosen out from the world and we've been taken up as God's children. And that's an amazing thing. So expect persecution is what I'm saying and expect it to get worse. I mean, I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't, but expect it to get worse. I think we're going to see gradually things get worse and worse. And I've told you before, if, uh, you know, I always bring this up because I want you to remember this. I bring it up over and over again. I want you to remember this. If they make if they make a law that says preaching that homosexuality is a sin, is a hate crime and punishable by jail time. I hope you'll come visit me (laughs) because that's where I'm going to be, because I'm always going to preach the truth. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a very good way to put it. We don't fit the mold because we have a new identity. If you think about it, we have a new identity. Yeah. Yeah. We don't fit their mold. And so they hate us for that. And in reality, if you think about it, your whole view of the world has changed because You may have come from a position where you looked, for example, at the earth or the universe as the life giver, right? That my life is based on the fact that the sun hits the earth and I go through all the science of it and that's the life giver. And now you understand as a born again believer, you understand God is the life giver. And so now you you have have a new identity. You have a new perspective even. And so you're not going to fit the mold. That's exactly right. You're not going to fit the mold and you're going to seem odd and you're going to seem weird and they're going to hate you because you're not the way they are right you're not the way they are so they're going to hate you anybody else have anything it's the truth Delisha's right that's the truth we don't fit their mold all right well let's go ahead and close in prayer most gracious heavenly father we thank you for our time of studying about the temple and we look forward to if you allow us the time we look forward to the uh the blessings, the dedication, the prayer, all the things that follow that are so amazing to see Solomon when he was walking with you and all the blessings that are associated with that. Father, we thank you for this reminder also out of the Gospel of John that we are in a a world that's antagonistic towards us. They're antagonistic towards us because they're antagonistic toward you. And so we should not expect anything different. Uh, They hated your son. They're going to hate us. And we thank you that as we have this reminder, we can hopefully uh, seek out your strength um, and your uh, your ability to give us perseverance so that when we do face persecutions, when we do face mockery and other persecutions, that we will not fold. We will not be shaken in our faith, but we will recognize that the world is just hating us the way the world is going to do the same way they hated your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things. In his most precious and holy name. Amen.